First Peter, as you might guess, I don't really deviate, so uh, here, here we are. Uh, we've been slowly and surely kind of clipping our way through this letter, and um, I trust it's been helpful to you. It's definitely been helpful to me and uh, my own heart, so um, glad to continue in that tonight. And just a little review here as we get going. Um, I'm sure you remember, but the Apostle Peter wrote this letter to a network of churches across Asia Minor. And these churches were experiencing difficulty, like we've said. And Peter wrote this letter to stabilize the church, or these churches. And he wanted to encourage them to live faithfully um, in these last days, uh, as they were waiting on the Lord's return. And so we are too, uh, some 2,000 years later. And really, you could summarize his message to these folks uh, with one little phrase, as you can see on the screen. I totally grabbed this graphic off the internet, so I didn't even design it, but I was like, hey, it uh, it captures our our theme perfectly. Uh, And the theme is elect exiles, as you can see. It's found in the very first verse of 1 Peter. Elect exiles. It's what he calls these these Christians um, across Asia Minor. And it's Peter's really shorthand for everything he's going to talk about in this letter. He wants these Christians and and every Christian after them to think of themselves uh, in these categories as elect exiles. And he wants them to to, to think first, think of themselves first as, as elect, so as God's chosen people. Or we might say his restored covenant people. Right, So there's our theme, elect exiles. And he wants us to think of ourselves as God's, God's chosen people. His restored new covenant people. So we've come into God's people through a Jewish Messiah. We're Gentiles, but we've come in through a Jewish Messiah. And now we're part of true Israel, restored Israel. And all of that reflects God's choice, Peter says. We're elect It's all part of his plan to fulfill his word in these last days. That's the idea. And it's precisely because we're chosen. It's because we belong to the new creation now, to that new world that's coming. It's because of that that now we feel like exiles here. We're still in exile. We're still in a world that doesn't acknowledge its true king. We're still in a world that opposes that king, and so life is sometimes, actually oftentimes, uh, difficult for us. That's what it means to be in exile, and Peter is going to unpack that in the the middle and last sections of this letter. But he spends the first part of this letter elaborating this theme of being elect in particular, and he, he starts the letter, like we've seen, by highlighting just how privileged we are to be part of God's chosen people, to be part of that elect elect group, that true, restored Israel. So we've said that he, he shows us the privilege of covenant partnership. The, the great blessings, we might say, of being a restored covenant partner in these last days. And it's really what Adam lost and what Israel could only hope for under the old covenant, now we've regained in the new birth. We've regained this immense privilege in and through Christ in the new birth, Peter says. We've experienced rebirth, this inner renewal. We've experienced that heart circumcision that the Old Testament prophesied, predicted, would occur in the new covenant. 
And now we have future hope, Peter says. A living hope that will be resurrected one day. That hope includes the the inheritance that we're going to receive in the new creation. All those things we sang about in Amazing Grace. And, And we could go on and on as Peter does in the first part of this letter. Suffice it to say, we're restored covenant partners, and he highlights those privileges uh, in verses 3 all the way down through 12, chapter 1. But we've also seen that these privileges come with what? Responsibilities, right. The privileges come with responsibilities, we would say, of this covenant partnership. And that just means God's restored us for a purpose, for a reason. And it's not just to sit on the sidelines waiting around, you know, for the return of Christ and just trying to get by. He saved us for a purpose. He saved us to live fruitfully as His covenant partners. Literally, we can think about it as partnering with Him in His mission. We're partnering with Him to live as His regal sons and daughters in a world that needs restoring. We're partnering with Him in these last days in the restoration work. And it's the most glorious calling that we could have, that humans could have. It's what we were made for. It's the most rewarding work that we could put our hands to. It's difficult, but it's rewarding. And why is that? Well, lots of reasons, but we can see tonight, we're going to see tonight, that this kind of work is going to endure. Okay? It's going to endure. It's going to pass beyond this creation. It doesn't terminate with this old creation, but it will transition to the new. Or as Paul says, our labor for Christ is never in vain. Right? 1 Corinthians 15. It's never in vain. It's never going to be fruitless when we're laboring for Christ. So, what are some of those responsibilities that Peter lays out for us? Well, he gives five of them in this opening section in in the first chapter. And he starts those in verse 13. So far, we've covered three of the five. And we saw that initially, Peter told us that we've got to align our hopes with the future grace that's coming to us. Verse 13, he's told us to set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's tied back to what he said earlier. We've had, we have this great hope, this living hope, and so because we have that hope, we have to align our hopes with that hope. We have to set our hope fully on that day. That future day. That day when Christ returns, when He meets us with His grace, the day we're resurrected and that we receive the greatest inheritance imaginable. And if we're hoping for that day, if we're living for that day, It'll transform how we live today. So that's our first priority as, as a covenant partner. We've got we to learn to hope in future grace, to set our hope fully on that day. And the second flows from that. And, and once our hopes are fixed in the right place, it will spill over into our lives, into every nook and cranny of our lives, and we'll become holy children. We'll work to imitate God, to reflect our Father's holiness in the various areas of our lives. We'll become children who imitate the Father, who in His great love gave us this new birth, right? But the fact that He's our loving Father doesn't mean we can't, it doesn't mean that we should start treating Him casually. We looked at that last time. That's because, third, our, our faithful covenant, our, in our faithful covenant partnership, we should have a healthy fear of our Father. We know that we'll have to give an account to our Father for how we lived this life as His people. We know that He saved us at a great cost. We saw that last time. And those truths motivate us to, to fear Him in the, in the positive sense of, of adoration 
respect, living our lives in reverential honor of our Father. And so tonight, Peter's going to give us our fourth responsibility of this covenant partnership. And uh, let's read the text and see if you can pick it out. Shouldn't be too hard for a bunch of college students. All right, verse 22, picking it up in verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what was it? Love one another. Look at that. You, you nailed it. Love one another. To have a deep and profound love for our spiritual siblings, we might say. Peter wants us to have a deep commitment to each other. To our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is a massive part. You might even say it's the climactic part of our covenant partnership with him. And so tonight, Peter's going to dial us in on this fourth responsibility to love our spiritual siblings, is what what I'm calling this message tonight. Loving our spiritual siblings. Peter knows that the church is the one place on earth that can reflect this kind of divine glory. The glory of love. As God's restored people, of all the people of the earth, we now have a capacity to love, like God. Before, we didn't have a capacity to love. We loved ourselves. We might have loved hypocritically. We might have kind of given lip service to some of these things, but we didn't love like God. We didn't have the capacity. We weren't able to because we were dead. Self-absorbed. We were lovers of self. We just cared about ourselves if we were honest. But now, through Christ, we have the capacity for real relationships. We have the opportunity to taste a little bit of heaven on earth as we cultivate the deepest friendships. Right here in Boundless, right at TBC, in our church. Peter has a glorious vision of what these little churches in Asia Minor could become if they were to yield themselves to these instructions. And they could become a place of real love. If we're going to see a familial type of love that is divine love. The church of all the places on earth can become a place where God's love is known and experienced, where it's expressed consistently among its members, and where it's cherished deeply. But as we all know, these kind of relationships uh, are not easy. They're not cultivated automatically. So if our friendships are going to reflect Christ's love, if we're going to reflect God's divine love, it's going to take work. We should, we should acknowledge that. It's going to take work. It's going to take a giving up of ourselves. And that means we need to be instructed. Even though we have the capacity to love, we still need to be motivated. We've got to be instructed on how to do this. And Peter's going to do both of these tonight in our passage before us. He's going to motivate us and instruct us to become these loving covenant partners. And so for our purpose tonight, we're going to draw out five details about this instruction to love. Just going to look at five of the details of, of this instruction to love. As you can tell just even by reading it, he, he says a lot there. There's one, really like one clause that talks about the instruction, and the rest around it is kind of the packaging of this 
of the instruction. And he starts with some motivation. Some truth that's going to light a fire in us to love each other. He'll start with some motivation and he'll end with some motivation. But let's look at the, the way he starts. And he gives us his first detail about love. And we've got to know that love is the very purpose of our conversion. So what Peter's saying here as he opens this paragraph. He's saying love, this, this idea of love, is the very purpose of our conversion. It's why God saved us. He saved us to turn us into a loving people. And when we get this, when we sink our teeth into this, it, it transforms, motivates how we approach loving each other. So, look with me again in verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. So, before Peter tells us to love each other, he reminds us of something. So, what is it? What's he reminding us of? He's reminding us that our souls have already been purified, he says. But specifically, not just that we've been purified, but we've been purified for something, for a purpose. And it's for a sincere brotherly love. You see that? That's the goal of our purification. That's why we've been purified. We've been purified so we would love each other. So we could say love, in our our heading here, love is the very purpose of our conversion. That's why he saved us. Now, if you're looking at this, and you might be wondering why I'm saying that Peter here is talking about our conversion. Because at first glance, you, you hear him talking about our obedience, right? And it sounds like, obedience sounds like something after our conversion, right? You have that question? Okay, some of you. Some of you have asked me this already, and I said, hey, just wait till we get there, okay? We'll talk about it. It almost sounds like we're continuing to purify ourselves by our obedience. But if you look with me a little bit closer, I think you'll see that he's talking about our conversion here. So where am I getting this? Well, first notice that whatever this purification is, it's already happened. You see that? He says, having purified your souls. I'm in the past. We've, We've heard this language before, this purification language. He's drawing on what he, said, what he said earlier. And all the way back in verse 2 of this first chapter, Peter tells us that the Spirit is the one who's done this work. He's set us apart. He's sanctified us. He's purified us. It's the same, same word group. Okay, Verse 2, the Spirit has done this work. We're sanctified by the Spirit, it says in verse 2. And we saw there that it was a reference to the cleansing that happened to us at our conversion. So the metaphors is we're defiled in sin, and then the Spirit came and cleansed us. He set us apart from that defilement to purity. And that happened at our conversion. But notice here, in our text, notice how Peter, Peter says it happened here. He says this purification happened by our obedience to the truth. You see that? And that's what trips us up, I think. But it shouldn't because for Peter, it helps to know that obedience and faith are interchangeable for him in his mind. They're used interchangeably. And here, when he's talking about our obedience to the truth, he's talking about how we first believed the gospel. And if you think about it for a second, it makes sense, right? Like, when you were told the good news of Jesus, you were told to do something with that news. What was it? Believe it, right? Yeah, repent and believe the gospel. Like, you know what those are? 
Those are commands. <laughs> to be obeyed, right? So in, in one sense, you could say that when we trust the gospel, when we abandon ourselves and trust in Jesus, we are literally obeying the gospel, right? There's an obedience aspect to the good news. Those are commands. And Peter talks in these very terms over in chapter 4. So if you look over in chapter 4, verse 17, he describes unbelievers unbelievers as those who do not obey the gospel. Interesting. They do not obey the gospel. Look in verse 17. He says, It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Chapter 4, verse 17. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what's he talking about there? What's he getting at? He's saying unbelievers are those who have not repented and believed the good news. They've not obeyed the, God, the, the commands of the gospel to, to trust Christ and repent of their sin. So if we come back to our text, back in chapter 2, it's starting to come into focus for us a little bit. Peter's talking about our conversion when we first obeyed the truth, when we first repented and believed in, in Christ. That's the idea. But you might still be wondering, okay, you, you just said a minute ago that the Spirit is the one who sanctified us, the Spirit's the one who purified us, but now you're saying the purification happened through our faith and our obedience. So which is it? Do we purify ourselves by believing, or does the Spirit purify us? I think you can bring these ideas together, because ultimately it was the Spirit, as we've seen, who enabled us to believe in the first place, right? He grant, God granted us through the Spirit, He granted us new birth. And in that new birth, when he brought us alive, our first breath was the breath of faith. And so we believe. From a human standpoint, we don't feel God making us alive. We don't see him kind of the spirit descending on us. And, but he's doing that behind the scenes. That's why we're enabled to believe. So you believe the gospel and you were purified from a human vantage point. And then from God's vantage point, it was the spirit who was doing that work, doing the purification. So it's really two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. Both are true. And one, the Spirit, leads to the other, our faith. And so in both senses, we, we're purified. So if we get back to our text, that's not even the main point, all right? Uh, that was a long way of saying that Peter is talking about our conversion. But I just wanted that to be clear to you, all right? We first believe the gospel, and that's when we were purified in our souls, he said. Our souls, the innermost part of us, is purified. But as important as that was to establish, that's not even Peter's main point. Peter's point is he's trying to show us that we were converted for a purpose. You see that? What's the purpose? He says it's for, here's the purpose, for a sincere brotherly love. So his point, what he's trying to get across to us, is that we've been purified in our very souls so that we can love out of those souls. So that we can love sincerely. Before he ever tells us to love, he wants to make sure that we see this. He wants us to understand that God went to all the effort to save us. He planned it all. He sent his son. He crucified his son. He sought you out some 2,000 years later. He applied the work of the gospel to you. He brought you into church. He did all this to teach you how to love. What's that imply? It implies that learning to love is not optional for God's people. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion, right? A loveless Christian is an oxymoron. Like, it's just it's not going to work. 
We can't just say, well, I'm not a people person, so I'm not going to get that involved in my relationship. You're going to tell that to the Lord? (laughs) He set this up, you know. This is the very purpose. Or I don't want to get hurt, so I'm not going to get close to anybody in the church. Or I got burned in the last church I was in, so I'm not going to join this church. I'm going to keep my distance. I'm not going to love these people. And that way, I mean, yeah, I'm going to be nice, but uh, like, you know, it's not an option, actually. According to what Peter's saying here, people who have experienced Christ's love, people who are calling upon God as our Father, meaning He's slaughtered His Son and brought us in, must love. That's the purpose, according to God, for why He saved us. It's why we were purified. We have to pay it forward. It's the only option. So imagine, illustration, you wanted to get some chickens, like birds. You guys know what those are? Okay. Like our brother Chet did. Is Chet in here tonight? There he is. You just got some chickens, right? So Chet wants some chickens. He looks them up on the internet. Did you do some research for those chickens? Wow. You're blowing up my illustration, Chet. Well, if I were to get chickens, I would have to do a lot of research because I don't know anything about chickens. Chet bought these chickens on the Internet. They came to him in a box. He got all the supplies he needed for those chickens. I'm assuming some things here, Chet, so you can fact-check me later. He had to get grow light. He had to build a chicken coop. He had to get fencing. He had to go to all this trouble to raise these little chicks, defend off the predators, that like to eat little chicks, make a good snack. All the things Chet has to do. It takes months for a chicken to grow, start laying some eggs, and finally the time has come. They're full-grown hens, and Chet walks out, and there's no eggs. Goes out the next day, no eggs. The next day, no eggs. Now, that's a dumb analogy, okay? But you get the point. Chet didn't get those little chicks out and raise them and go all that work for them not to produce eggs, right? God saved you for the purpose of teaching you how to love, okay? So that's got to be the default setting in our minds. It's why He purified our souls. And when that sinks in, it will motivate you to love. When you realize that God cares deeply that He's got a lot invested in you, and that He expects you to learn to pay that forward, that changes the game. It will motivate you to overcome your shyness in the church and to learn to be proactive when you see a new person. God expects this of you. It's why He saved you. It's why He was proactive toward you. It will help you awkwardly confront a friend who's straying in sin. Even though you don't really know how to do it, it might come out weird and awkward and all the things. Why? Because God saved you for this purpose. God is for you. He's going to help you. He's channeling everything to this end to teach you to become a loving person, to love like Him. And to know that God has purified us for the purpose of love is a massive motivator that will help us do the hard work of love. It will help us confront our excuses when we're making them, And so we've got to have this first detail fixed in our minds if we're going to love. Love is the very purpose of our conversion. And that brings us to our second detail. It's an obvious one, but it's still worth pointing out. And it has to do with the the target of our love. Who's Peter commanding us to love here? 
Well, love is aimed at our spiritual siblings, meaning the church, other Christians. Peter's not saying we shouldn't love unbelievers. He's going to get to that later in the letter. But he's saying here that our top priority needs to be loving each other, loving the saints, or as he says here, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's clear that Peter's talking about our love for the church in this passage, and it's obvious because he tells us to love one another. You hear that language? And that's it's always a reference to the church. But there's another reason I'm drawing this out here. And notice that he describes this love in a particular way. He calls it a sincere brotherly love. That's what we've been saved for. We've been saved for this sincere brotherly love. It's a different word. He's about to use a different word when he says love, love one another. They're, they're highly synonymous, but it's, he chooses a particular word here. And it's this brotherly love. It has the idea of a tender, familial love, a love of your siblings. And if we've been paying attention, this, is, this, comes, this, whole, this whole section, beginning in verse 3 all the way down, has this idea of being in the family of God. We've been born again, new birth, and he just continues working that imagery all the way down here. It's a word that has this idea of a, a love of your siblings, a tender, familial love. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about loving your brother or your sister. Okay? It might not be tender, familial love, but that is what this word means. Okay? You might not have had the most tender of affections for your sister or brother, um, but get that out of your mind. You should have. Okay? And that's what this word means. The metaphor itself has to do with the kind of intimate affection that family members should have for each other compared to those outside the family. And we get it. You know, that makes sense to us. There's a unique love among family. And it's because you're family, right? There's like no other reason. There's no other explanation. It's just like I'm related to them. Um, and that's the idea here. Peter's saying we've been purified for this kind of warm, tender, brotherly love, this love of our spiritual siblings. And this means then that Peter wants us to see each other as siblings, as family, Right? And he wants us to treat each other like family, like good family, okay? And that's helpful when it comes to thinking through what our love should look like in relationships, okay? Let's give some ideas, all right? It means that we're committed to each other, like we are to our own family. We're committed to each other. We didn't choose our biological siblings, and in the same way, we didn't choose our spiritual siblings. God chose them. Remember, we're elect. God chose our family. And beyond that, he even chose who would join our particular church and who wouldn't. And even who would join Boundless and who wouldn't. So that means we've got to figure out how to get to know and to love the people that are among us because we are family. Even if we wouldn't naturally gravitate toward each other. I'm not saying you don't have friend groups. Those are natural, normal things. We can't know everybody with the same depth. Okay, you have to kind of break that up into some friend groups. But I am encouraging you not to just gravitate toward the people you know or just certain people all the time because that's your group, right? Because we're all family. Every member here is part of our spiritual family. We want to act like it. So we're committed to each other. We don't bolt when things get hard. We work through it. And another implication is, here's another one, we're committed But when someone new joins, it's like a new family member that we've not had the chance to meet yet has come into our our family, right? Like we're in the reunion, right? 
They're like, oh, I don't know that person. Actually, I'm your cousin. Oh, let's, let's meet. Uh, I need to get to know you because you're my family. You have a reason to meet them at the reunion because you're related to them. And so the same is true among us. This helps us to be proactive in our relationships toward each other. We're going to be together a long time, right? <laughs> a really, really long time. So let's go ahead and get started, all right? And finally, here's another implication. When we recognize the, this family aspect of our love, and particularly when we, when we recognize that we're brothers and sisters, and we, we start thinking in those categories, it helps the singles among us relate to each other, right? It keeps us out of the ditches on two sides. So guys should treat the ladies like sisters, and the ladies should treat the guys like brothers, okay? And it helps us avoid these extremes. On the one side, it helps you avoid the extreme of treating the opposite sex like they have COVID, you know, and like never talking to them. That's not good, okay? They're your brother. You wouldn't just not talk to your brother for years, okay? You can talk to each other. You don't have to be afraid that you talking to another spiritual brother, spiritual sister is going to be misinterpreted, right? Because we're siblings. We're spiritual siblings. That's got to be, that's got to be in the, the, that's the one ditch, okay? The other ditch helps you not to overdo it, okay? With your spiritual brother or sister. Your spiritual siblings. So you need to treat each other with all purity and honor. You need to be above reproach in your friendships with each other. And this applies even to the dating relationships. Until you're married, right, you're only still a spiritual brother or sister. And you've got to emblaze that on the back of your eyelids. Because it's tempting to think otherwise. We want to create the third category of like the quasi-marriage. But that's just not the case. I'm not saying you can't go on dates, you can't be alone, but as you do... Keep in mind that this is your spiritual sibling and nothing more until you're married. Does that make sense? We just opened a can there. So don't worry, I'm not going to preach the dating series. Let's get back to our text. Talking about love. So Peter's telling us that when it comes to loving each other, we should target our relationships in the church. Okay? He's not saying we should not love unbelievers. He's going to get to that later in this letter. For example, in chapter 3, he's going to tell us that we should bless those who revile us. He's going, to, he's going to work that theme out in depth. But he is saying that we should prioritize loving each other. So why, why is that? Let's think about that for a second. Why, why should we prioritize the in-house love versus outside love? Because you might think, well, shouldn't we be prioritizing loving unbelievers Instead of loving the church, we should prioritize them because we want to see them come to Jesus. And, but not according to Peter. Again, I'm not saying he says don't love them. He's saying prioritize in-house. Do you realize that part of the mission, part of the mission, the heart of the mission of Christ is to learn to love each other well? That's part of the Great Commission. It's growing up in every way. It's not just evangelizing unbelievers. Evangelizing is important. We want to be doing that. But when you learn to tangibly express love to someone in boundless, you are participating in the Great Commission. How so? Because you're learning to obey all that Christ commanded you. 
And the apex of that obedience, the climax of it, is learning to lay your life down like he did for the people of God. You're filling up the fullness of Christ as you learn to resemble him on earth as you love. And then there's, a, there's kind of a, a, a backdoor thing that happens when the church is given to really learning to love each other. And the Lord uses the strong love for the body, that strong example of loving others, to bring unbelievers to himself. They see the depth of our relationships. And the Lord uses this to draw them in. They see a power that is unknown to them. They don't know what to do with their bitterness or their resentment. But then they see church members forgiving each other and serving each other, and that's love. And you know what happens? Not every time, but many times they're drawn to the Lord as they see that kind of power, a power that they don't know anything about, a power that their therapist can't seem to channel and help them with. The church has that power through the Spirit. Some of you in here could testify to that very thing. It's the love of the brethren, the love of the church that brought you into the church, that attracted you to the church that the Lord used. So my point here, and more importantly, Peter's point here, is that learning to love the church, learning to treat its members like family, is part of being a faithful covenant partner. We're going to see this metaphor he blows out. It's spiritual sacrifices that we're offering to the Lord as the new priesthood, the new temple. All these things are happening when we learn to love. This is our greatest, even our most climactic responsibility as these covenant partners. And you can see that, just a side note, over in chapter 4, verse 8. This sort of climax in love. He says, verse 8, he's given some rapid-fire commands, and he says, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Right? Above everything else, I'm going to put it at the top of the list, keep loving each other. Love is the climax, and it's our most climactic responsibility as these covenant partners. All right, so let's get back to the details that were drawn out about love. Let's move on to our third one. Um, and we've covered this one in depth on our Sunday morning series, this one another series. But we'll, So we'll cover it real quick, and we'll move, move forward. We can say it like this. Love involves giving ourselves for the good of others. So what, what, are, we, what are we aiming at here? It's, it's a giving of ourselves for the good of others. And I'm drawing this out from the meaning of the command. When he says love each other, in Peter's mind, what he's saying is that love is a kind of a giving of ourselves for the good of others. And it's, it's super important. I'm making a whole point out of this because it's super important that when we think about love, we think about it biblically and not culturally. Many of us, when we think of love, we think primarily in terms of our feelings. And again, I'm not about to just rail on feelings, okay? Um, But we do think almost exclusively in those terms, right? We fall in love. We talk to people that have fallen out of love. It's like that's that's totally feelings-oriented. Even when when we say love, even when we say the word, most of us are tempted to associate it with emotion only. Now, don't get me wrong. Biblical love is not anti-emotion. It's not anti-feeling. Far from it, Okay? Even the other word that we just looked at has this familial warmth associated with love. But we might say it like this. Love is more than a feeling. I feel like that's a song. Secular culture got that right. All right? 
It's more than a feeling. It's not contingent on our feelings. That's better. Okay, we'll say it like that. That'll get us off the, the joke I didn't intend. It's not contingent on our feelings, meaning our feelings don't determine whether or not we can become loving or whether we can act lovingly toward others. We can't say, in other words, we can't say, well, I really don't feel like loving you, so I'm not going to do it. That's because love, in the biblical sense, has to do with our commitment to the good of others. If you want a little shorthand phrase, it's good to think about it. Like, love has to do with our commitment to the good of others over how we feel about that, right? Over and over again in 1 Peter, you're going to hear Peter talking about doing good. So if you've read the letter, you've probably seen that. Doing good, doing good. That's another way he talks about love. It's action-oriented. And when we think about it in those categories, it helps us make love concrete. So we ask a simple question, okay, what does it look like to do what's best for that person? What does it look like to do good to that person? That's kind of like a filter in the moment. Like it sort of filters it out, helps us see, okay, this is... Here's what would be the loving thing to do. Is I'm doing good to this other believer. It helps us to know what to do, like kind of the next right thing. Now, the moment that I phrase it like this, it's giving of ourselves for the good of others, you immediately kind of feel this tension. And that's why love has to transcend how we feel. Because love costs us, often. It costs us. Doing good or doing what's best for another person involves a level of sacrifice. Like I'm saying in the heading, it involves a giving of yourself. It's hard to forgive the friend that embarrassed you in front of everybody else. It's hard to do. It's not easy to restrain your desire for intimacy in a dating relationship. But that's love. It costs you to do good to others, to do what's best for other people. And if you want more examples of love in the concrete, you can go back and listen to that one another series that we've uh, been on in Sunday mornings. We've seen lots of examples uh, of what love looks like in real time in that series, haven't we? I've been going through that, all those one another's. It's been super helpful. Looks like encouraging each other, confronting each other, bearing each other's burdens, all those things. So that's love fleshed out there in all the one another commands. For the sake of time, let's, let's move on to our fourth detail here about how to love in this passage. And it has to do with the way we love, right? How should we go about it right here in Boundless? Well, Peter says that love should be carried out consistently and sincerely. Love should be carried out consistently and sincerely. We see this in verse 22. Still milking this one verse so far. He says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestly from a pure heart. Did my mic die? Or is it still on? Still good? Okay. Just making sure I wasn't in la-la land over here. Love should be carried out consistently and sincerely. All right, so Peter now is adding some like garnish to the command. He's telling us a little, adding some flavor to it, showing us a little bit more about it. And this is particularly convicting, and it, it cuts against the grain of the selfishness in our hearts. He tells us how we should pursue the command. And initially, he says we should love others earnestly or fervently. The NASB translates this fervently. <clears throat> and both of those are translating the same word. 
Now, I think there should definitely be an eagerness in our love for each other. But I think what Peter's drawing out here is the consistency of our love for each other. That word can mean consistency. And so I think he's talking about this consistency here in our love. And it's closely related to like an earnestness, right? An earnest love is a love that doesn't give up. It's a love that is continuous and consistent. Because Peter knows it's easy to flame out when it comes to loving each other. Why is that? Why is it easy to flame out? It's because love's hard, yeah, because we sin. That's the answer. We try to love people, and then we're taken advantage of. Our love isn't always reciprocated the way that we want it to be reciprocated in our friendships. Sometimes we're left out of a friend group that we thought we were in. We've been working hard to serve and love, and then they don't invite us to the thing. Sometimes we seek to love other people when we disciple them. And progress is super slow. Lots of regression. Sometimes we invest in people only to see them leave the church. It's super easy to retreat. Kind of like stick your neck out there, your neck gets stepped on, and you think, I'm not doing that again. It's super easy to isolate and play the victim card, right? To grow bitter. To become calloused toward relationships and hold people at arm's length. Or to just be so scared of experiencing something that you experienced in the last place that you don't don't open yourself up to other relationships. It's kind of a defense mechanism that we do. You know, we, we isolate thinking that we're going to be protected. But it's a lie. Peter here is saying we've got to love consistently. We have to love earnestly. And for anybody that's been hurt, you're thinking, how? Right? Like, how do you do this? How are you able to love? How can Peter have the audacity to tell us to love consistently, to stay at it? For a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them would be that Peter knows that we have an endless source of love to draw from. The Lord's love for us never runs dry. There's always more patience. There's always more mercy. There's always more tenderness. One of the favorite expressions of God is that he is abounding in mercy. It would have been enough to say God is merciful, but that he is abounding in it means it's limitless. There's an endless stream of it available for his children, and that's us. And that's when you combine that reality with the reality with the truth that whenever you encounter something hard relationally, it's that same loving God that's bringing that challenge. That he is sovereign and he's bringing it to you as an opportunity. When those combine, now you've got some some anchors for consistency in your love. God brings the difficulties. It's a trial, yes, but the trial is in his hands like we learned earlier in the letter. He's bringing it. He's purifying your faith. He's burning out the dross. It's not the worst thing for you, in other words, whenever you experience pain relationally. Whenever you're stabbed in the back, whenever you're gossiped about, we think the lie that this is the worst thing for me. And it's bad, okay? It hurts, it's painful, I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. But it's not the worst. The worst would be that it's outside of God's control and you're damned for eternity. That would be the worst thing, okay? He's got it in his hands, he's using it to purify you, and it is an opportunity. So those two truths, his unending love to me and his complete sovereignty over my relational trials, those two truths equip me to keep loving, 
to stay consistent when it's hard. To get back up and to keep trying when I failed again to love that person. I just snapped at him, you know, or I just, whatever it is. Okay, I got to humble myself. Go to that, you know, it's just like, keep, keep at it. Keep loving him. Because God loves me and he's brought this trial, he's brought this relational rub in my life for my good. I can keep at it. But he doesn't stop there. He says also that we should love from a pure heart. From a pure heart, the ESV. Or if you're reading from the New American Standard, it says from the heart. Kind of leaves out that word pure in the middle, from the heart. It's because there's a textual variant there. Um, Just means like manuscripts don't agree. Just open a can. Um, (laughs) If you have questions about it, come talk to me later. I I think the better option is to keep it in there. Okay, so I think in this case, I'm not the arbiter of these things, but I think ESV gets it right. And his point, what is his point? Why does he say this here? He's getting at our sincerity and loving each other. Our sincerity. So our love should be sincere from a pure heart. Meaning, he doesn't just want us pretending to love each other on Thursday nights. You know, like, yeah, how you doing? Great. Yeah, well, it's a cute, cute shirt. And then going home and assassinating each other, ladies. Okay? But guys, don't snicker because you do the same thing in a different way. Okay? You try to be macho in your friendships and act like, right, nothing bothers me. And you just rip each other in sarcasm. You get your feelings hurt, but then you won't actually acknowledge it. Right? You keep acting like you're, yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't like being in the same room with the guy. You can't stand the guy, right? Because he sears you with sarcasm every time. That's superficial. That's insincerity. We've got to sincerely love. Which means sometimes we've got to be honest. We've got to work through our problems together. Sincerity means I I'm, I'm really am committed to your good. Like I really am. I mean, often we have mixed motives, right? He wouldn't be saying this. He wouldn't be drawing this out if we didn't, right? To love each other from a pure heart. We have mixed motives in our love. But he's calling us to not be superficial, to not blow smoke. Saying, I'm going to pray for you, and then never pray, right? Like, why do we say that? We say that because we want them to think well of it. It's like it's superficial. Peter's calling us to love at a deep level, from a pure heart, with sincere motives. In our innermost being, I should want your best. That's what he's saying. And you know what this means? Since none of us are perfect, we should get really used to being humble with each other. (laughs) You know what I mean? We need to get used to confessing when we've wronged someone. Like, that should be normal. Normal. Not like something weird. We should get used to that coming out of our mouths. I'm sorry, I said this. I'm sure that was not thoughtful. That was unkind. I've been careless with my words. And this also means, not only should we get used to that confessing, but we should also get used to receiving in humility when people come to us and they approach us. We should listen. If somebody comes to you and has been hurt by you, what's your default? Self-defense, right? I'm going I'm to def- defend myself because that's not what I meant. You misinterpreted me. Don't automatically defend yourself. Take a minute. 
Give them the benefit of the doubt. Because odds are, you probably were not as careful as you thought you were. And I've been here many times. Many times. We've got to humble ourselves if we're going to love sincerely from a pure heart. But that's the beautiful thing about the church. That's the beautiful thing about these family relationships. We stick together. We forgive. We reconcile. We can talk about these things. It's safe. We're together. We're covenanted together in Christ. You stab me in the back? Might take me a second, but like I'm going to forgive you. We're going to work through that. Because we are siblings. We belong to each other. We belong to Christ. Even if we have to have a hard conversation, we press through it in sincerity. I try to tell people that are in conflict with me sometimes, like, if, if we separate, it's because you're going to move away. Not me. Like, I'm, I'm, I want this to work. And that has to be our attitudes as we're coming into the body. We're going to make these things work. And what a place to be in a, in a, in a church like that, huh? So now I know that you might be tempted towards some discouragement at this point. You know, you're thinking like, do I really love people? (laughs) I'm not so sure. So take the conviction, all right, receive it, but don't be discouraged. Thank the Lord for the conviction, but don't let it throw you into a pit of despair. Don't let what I just said about loving consistently and sincerely, don't let that demotivate you to love. Because what Peter says next, and where we're going to end tonight, is the greatest motivation for us, I think, in this passage, to press on in this work. And that's because, number five, our fifth detail, is that love is, love is the enduring work of our restoration. Love is the enduring work of our restoration. Peter ends here in a, in a similar way to the way he began but there's a, there's, a, there's a difference here. There's a different emphasis. And I want to draw that out for us. And it, it, might, it might take us a second. But let's, let's look at these verses again. He says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. So we're, we're supposed to love. Here's why. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You math majors there are counting how many words that is and how long it's going to take me to explain this. I've only got like two pages on this, okay? So we really will land land the plane quickly. Peter's going to end here in a similar way he started. It's very encouraging. Okay, I don't have the time to get in the weeds. Maybe I will next time. Maybe we'll pick back up with that verse and, and get in the weeds. But let me just suffice it to say that Peter says our new birth and particularly the way that it came about, should fuel our pursuit of love. Our new birth and the way that it happened should fuel our pursuit of love. So let's look at this very quickly, and I'll try to make sense of this for you and and interpret my fifth point here uh, for you. First, he's saying our new birth, the new birth should fuel our pursuit of love. And that's pretty straightforward, okay? So don't miss the metaphor. He's arguing that since we've been born into the family something he talked about back in verse 3 of this, of this chapter, the new birth, since we've been born again into this family, we should love the family. Okay? And that makes sense to us. That's very straightforward. We've been born into the family, therefore we should love the family. What's not as straightforward is what he says next. He draws attention to how that new birth happened. 
the way it came about. Okay, so hang with me. He says it was not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So now he's working the metaphor. Our new birth, he says, is not part of the old creation. The creation is passing away. It didn't come from that kind of seed, like a human seed, an earthy seed. It came from an imperishable kind of seed, meaning one that is associated with the new creation. Okay, It's an imperishable seed, and then he gets explicit. He shifts from the metaphor now to the concrete. So he's like, what's he talking about here? He says this happened through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, we were born again imperishably through God's word. This word, which he describes as living, it brings life. It's living and it's abiding. It's a remaining kind of word. It, it remains and it will be fulfilled. All right? Holding that in your mind. Then he goes and quotes from the Old Testament to support what he just said. The quote is from Isaiah 40, and it highlights how fleeting and temporary the old creation is. This all flesh, he says, is like grass. It's the old creation. And, and how enduring, he says, the word of God is. He says it remains forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. Now it's important to know of all places that Peter chooses to quote from, he quotes from Isaiah 40. This is very important. Isaiah is predicting in the context a time when Israel will be restored from exile. Again and again, Isaiah says God will make good on his promises. They're in exile now, but God's made a promise and it's going to endure. God will bring salvation. He will restore his people through Messiah. He will bring in the new creation. That's all in Isaiah. And when it says here that the word of the Lord remains forever, his point is that the promises that God has made through His Word, those promises are going to come to pass. They're going to remain forever. They're not going to, they're not going to terminate. His promise to restore His people is an enduring promise that He will certainly fulfill. Kingdoms will rise and fall like grass that fades and withers away, but His Word will certainly be fulfilled. That's the essence of the quote from Isaiah 40. But now notice what Peter does next. He connects this enduring word in Isaiah, this prediction, to the gospel that was preached to this church. You see what he did? Verse 25, this, is the, this word of the word of the Lord that remains forever, this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news that God has come to redeem His people and include them in the new creation. That's the good news that he's talking about. And that was the good news that Isaiah was talking about. And the Gentiles, Peter's audience, have been included in this restoration. They've been born again by his word, by hearing it, by believing it, and so have we. So let's try to bring all this together real quick and connect it to love. Okay. Peter is saying we should love because we've been swept up into this restoration. We're experiencing the promises of Isaiah in real time. Because remember back, Isaiah longed to see the things that are taking place right now. He longed to see how these things would come to fulfillment. And now we're living them out. And he's drawing out in particular how through the new birth, we're part of something imperishable. Something abiding. Something that will remain. And that, he says, should motivate us to love. Why? How does that motivate us to love? The fact that we're swept up in this restoration. The fact that we're 
that that because he, he's drawing out the fact that it's imperishable. Like this thing that's happening is abiding, abiding word of God. We've been swept up in this. I think here's the implication. Because our works of love will remain through the final judgment. Our, we will be lavishly rewarded for our love. Remember back to last week how Peter reminded us that even as believers we're either going to suffer loss or we're going to be rewarded for how we live this life as believers. And what he's doing here is he's tying it to the pursuit of love. Because we are part of what is imperishable, because we've been born again, we should give ourselves to work that will also remain. And that is love. And that is his point. And that's massively motivating. Do you realize that every single little act of love counts? That every act of love is of incalculable value to the Lord. We're going to look later about wives and they're, they're cultivating this beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, it says, and it's an imperishable beauty. Same word. Imperishable. Meaning, the quality that they're cultivating will endure to the new creation. It's not going away. Through your acts of love, He has promised, God has promised, to reward you, yes, and to extend His dominion on earth. Even now. Through your acts of love, you are building up an imperishable church. You're performing deeds that will live on eternally. You're building character, like we just said, that will accrue in reward on that final day and will carry over into the new creation. Love will endure, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. And that's not just kind of a, a, a nice thing to put on your wall. Like, he means it. And Peter's implying the same thing here. None of our labor is wasted when we love. It all counts. And that is the maximally motivating truth in this passage. It, it motivates us to live a fruitful life, a life of love. So let's get busy, continuing to get busy, loving each other right now, tonight, and for the rest of our days. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful to be caught up in this. We gaze into Your Word, and it's hard for us to get our minds around it sometimes, and just the glory of, of, of what our eyes can't see yet. But Lord, we see enough, and we pray that You would, by Your Spirit's power, um, just compel us to take that next step in love, even tonight with the joy and the hope that we're going to be rewarded for it, that's going to endure, that we're building your kingdom um, one little act at a time. Use us, we pray, in ways that we could never imagine or think. We ask it in Christ's name.